Titus chapter 2 is where we're going to be at today. Um, this is Communion Sunday, which means it's the first Sunday of the month. This is also what we call Family Worship Sunday. So if you're a middle school and high school student, so glad you're here with us. This is our first time together as a church in 2020. And what that means is high school students, middle school students, you come with your family, your first family, your natural family. Or if you're in a family um, that is not natural, but you're a part of your first family. But we have come together, come together as small clusters of first families, and we gather together as our second family, which is our church family. And when we come together on the first Sunday of the month, it is important for us to understand that we as the family of God come together and celebrate with joy what the Lord has done for us in sending Jesus to rescue us from the wrath of God, and we do that through communion. So I'm glad that you're here, and um, it's just going to be a good time together. I don't know what you did over the new year. Um, I trust that you were responsible and you went to bed at like 12.02 or whatever it was. My family and I, um, I don't know if you do this or not, but uh, Heather and I and the kids, we, we went to a cabin um, for the weekend and uh, it was just a really good time. But Heather and I were talking about New Year's and I didn't know this was a thing, but I guess evidently it's a thing. But people choose a word. And then their word is going to be like their vision for the year kind of thing. Does anyone do this? This is trendy. I think that's a big thing. So people choose like, you know, this year my word is engage. And you're like, whoa. I don't know what that means, but all right, you know. Or thrive. Um, all right. So uh, I didn't know this was a thing, so I was thinking, what word would I choose? So what is your word? I don't know what your word would be. I don't even know if you knew that was a thing, but obviously if you didn't know that was a thing is because you're lame. Um, and so, <laughs> so I decided to come up with a word, and, and my word is this, uh, pablum. And I don't know if you know what this word means, but pablum, P-A-B-L-U-M, uh, it was not only a breakfast cereal, which tasted disgusting, but it was also, pablum is a word to describe something which is just bland. And it has to do with entertainment or it has to do with the life of the mind, that kind of thing, where you're just... You just find whatever somebody's talking about or what you're engaged in, whether it's a movie or a conversation or whatever. You just find it so dull and so boring. It's lifeless. It's featureless. It's uninspiring. You're like, Bleh. you know what I'm saying? Pablum. So that's my word for this year. <laughs> and the reason why was um, our small group got together, kids and everyone, uh, at one of our friends' house, and we, that's how we rang in the new year. And uh, as we were sitting there kind of waiting for the ball to drop and all that kind of stuff, we were watching this TV show, and it was a complete waste of time, but it was just in the background and all that kind of stuff. But it was about celebrities watching stuff and making commentary on pop culture. So there's like cat videos and like people falling off ladders and celebrities, what they wore on the red carpet, and everyone's commenting. And it was the 2019 most unforgettable moments. And it was so funny because as we were like, you know, every once in a while we, you know, we were watching and we we're like, what, what is this about? And then somebody, you know, something would happen and somebody in the room would say, oh, I remember that. And I thought to myself, 2019's most unforgettable moments forgotten by all of us. <laughs> like, this is so bizarre. I don't know if you know this TV show. It's called The Masked Singer. And it's celebrities who are commenting on celebrities. And pretty soon I started to realize there's a show about celebrities playing board games with each other. And, and I started to realize a lot of stuff that's on TV is just pablum. <laughs> it's just mindless and just so uninteresting, honestly. 
As Eleanor Roosevelt said, like great minds think of you know, lofty thoughts and small minds, they talk about people. And celebrities particularly. And what's interesting too is I was thinking about uh, 2020 and like Pablum and this word and I started to realize, you know what, I've said this before, we live in a distracted age. What I mean is we are so connected to everything in the world through our phones and all that kind of stuff that we are constantly wanting to know what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. You can't be in an elevator, you can't be in a line, you can't even be at a stop sign without, i got to check my phone. Something catastrophic or amazing could have happened in the last eight seconds and I will be left out. And people mocked me, they asked me if I saw Star Wars, and I said, no, I hadn't seen it yet, and they're like, (laughs) 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 and I'm thinking, like, honestly, it'll be out in the movies for a while, like, I'll see it eventually. But you start realizing that, you know what, we're so connected we want to know what everyone is doing all the time, and we want to know what people are thinking. We, we just constantly want this. I feel this temptation quite a bit, to be honest with you. I was reading a book this last week, and as I was reading it, something came to my mind in the, in the book I was reading. Then I had to check my email real quick, and then my email led me to check this thing on this website. And then I had to go to this other place, and I had to go back to my email. I had to fire. Next thing you know, I went, for, you know, I'm going to spend an hour reading this book. I spent like eight minutes reading the book and like 52 minutes on email. Because we live in a distracted culture where sustained reflection is not a part of what it means to live today. We just don't have time. We don't carve out time in our life where we read a book or we interact with a conversation and then we reflect on that conversation or we reflect on that book for an extended amount of time. We're off to the next thing, off to the next thing, off to the next thing. And we're just distracting ourselves with all kinds of pablum. Does anyone really care what J-Lo wore? I, some people do. I get that. But honestly, how does that make your life more glorifying to God? So I guess my word is not pablum. It's unpablum. That's not even a word. But you heard it here first. It will be. What people are talking about with 2020 is the endless jokes of what's your vision for 2020. 2020 vision. And then people will quote Jeremiah 29, 11. I, have, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And so we say, okay, 2020, it's all about, you know, I'm going to live hard for the Lord. But the reality is this. We are filled with pablum. We are filled with mindless, featureless, uninspiring content that is constantly berating us every second of the day. We're addicted to so much of this kind of stuff. We don't sustain reflection on things that actually matter. And yet we want God to reveal his purpose for us in the coming year. And generally, we look to verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, which is a great verse, properly understood. But in the long run, it's too general. So what I want to do today is I want to go in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, and I want to make some more practical and more precise observations about what God's plan and purpose for us is in 2020. Okay, I want to be more specific than just God has a plan. I want to actually talk about what is it that God wants? Like what actually should I be doing on a day-to-day basis? And I can say with confidence, I know for a fact what God wants us to do. I know it. And it isn't because I'm some kind of genius of sociologist or anything. It's just because the Bible says so. 
And I want to show that. Titus 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, Father, we have before us this beautiful text. And so I pray that you would grant us the Holy Spirit in such measure that according to your grace, you would reveal to us what it is we ought to know. Grant that we may see and behold wondrous things in your word, just as King David prayed. We ask, God, that you would illumine our minds, that you would transform our hearts, that you would make our wills in conformity to yours. If we don't want the things you want, God, cause us to want them. Overcome our resistance. Transform us, I pray. Grant us what it is that you want us from this text to know, to feel, and to do. And we submit this to you for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text here, in verse 11, what you see is a sentence. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In this sentence, you have the subject of the sentence, which is the grace of God. And then the verb is in the first verse, uh, first word in verse 12, which is training us. And so what we see from this sentence is the grace of God trains us. The grace of God trains us. And what we see here is there is training that happens. The question is, what kind of training does the grace of God provide? And the second question is, well, what is the grace of God? Like, who, who is it or what is it that does the training? And so what I want to do is start out by just an, asking and answering those two questions. What or who is the trainer and what is the training? And this is significant. We have to know this. This is the new year. Gyms are going to be full of people. And there are going to be people sitting on equipment doing things that they have no idea what they're doing. And they are lifting and pushing and pulling things. But just because you're sitting on a piece of equipment in a gym, pushing, pulling, or doing something, doesn't necessarily mean that what you're doing is actually profitable. You have to know what the machine is intended to do. You have to know what muscles you are looking to exercise. Your training is only as good as the trainer, whether that be a picture, do this, don't do that, or an actual live person is standing there beside you telling you and teaching you what exactly you ought to do. You guys tracking with me? Therefore, a trainer is significant and important for the training. And if you don't have a proper understanding of a trainer and his expertise or her expertise, your training could suffer. So we have to ask and answer these questions. What is the trainer or who is the trainer and what is the training? So let's identify the trainer first. We saw from the subject that it's the grace of God. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. One of the questions I have when reading this text is, how in the world does the invisible attribute of God called the grace of God, how exactly does an invisible attribute appear? You think about that? The grace of God has appeared. What is it or who is it that makes an invisible attribute of God visible? 
Not only that, but when you look in Titus chapter 3, verse 4, you, you jump down a little bit, you'll see two more invisible attributes, God's goodness and God's loving kindness. So what or who is it that makes the grace of God, the goodness of God, and the loving kindness of God, which are all invisible attributes, what is it or who is it that makes those invisible attributes visible? And the answer is Jesus. How I know that is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, where it says, in many times and in many ways, God has revealed himself, but in these last days, he's revealed himself through his son. And his son, in verse 3, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, when you look to Jesus, what you see is the exact imprint of God. That's why Jesus can tell in John chapter 14, he can tell Philip, when Philip asks the question, show us the Father and that's enough and, and where are you going and all that kind of stuff, Jesus can simply just look at Philip and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I have come to make the Father known. So the invisible attributes of God are made visible in the person of Jesus, who is God come in the flesh. So the grace of God appeared when Jesus came. And this grace of God is what trains us. This Jesus is who trains us. But is that it? Is it only Jesus that this is referring to? Only Jesus trains us? And I would say no. There's actually more that's going on. The reason why Paul says the grace of God has appeared rather than just saying Jesus appeared is because he wants us to understand something about the nature of the grace of God. What's interesting in the New Testament is many of the writers actually use the grace of God and the gospel synonymously. They kind of are interchangeable. So when a writer is writing about the gospel, they are implying or inferring the grace of God and vice versa. Let me show you Acts chapter 20, verse 24. The Apostle Paul says this, and he's speaking to the Ephesian elders on the shores of Miletus right before he was leaving them. He says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. And what is it that Paul wants to spend his life doing? Testify to the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. You see, when we understand what the gospel is, the good news that in Jesus Christ, who is God come in the flesh, who lived a sinless life, was crucified for the forgiveness of sins, and was resurrected from the dead as the first fruits of the new creation, showing that he has conquered sin and death, and he is able to give life eternal to all who will believe in him. When we understand what the gospel is, what we come to understand most profoundly is what grace is. For the gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save sinners from the wrath of God. And not a single sinner saved from the wrath of God is deserving or has earned that salvation. It's all grace. So the gospel is God's grace. It is about Jesus and what Jesus has done in order to save people from the wrath of God. What Paul says basically is this, is my, my life, I don't account my life as my own. I'm, I'm using my life for the sake of the gospel. You want to talk about an unpablumed life. That's it. When you give your life for the sake of the gospel, you will never be bored. 
But when your life is profoundly about yourself, you will find yourself bored frequently. So what is the trainer or who is the trainer? I would simply conclude this. The trainer is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. The trainer is the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And that trainer, the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, that trainer is providing us with training. Now, what is the training? The training comes in two dimensions, and it has one overlapping characteristic. The two dimensions are going to be negative and positive. The negative is going to tell you, don't do this. So if you're training physically, they'll tell you, stop eating red vines. That's the negative. Start eating kale. That's the positive or negative, depending on your perspective. (laughs) But you see what happens. Stop, you know, like sitting around and, and sleeping for 18 hours a day. Start walking. And so there's a negative and a positive to training. And likewise, we see in verse 12 that the training provides a negative and a positive. The Apostle Paul writes this, training us, so the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, trains us to negatively renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, positively, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So what does it mean exactly to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions? That's the first dimension. It's a negative dimension. It means stop doing this. The reality is this, 2 Peter 3.18, one of my favorite verses, it says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a command. Grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is to say, the more that we grow in the understanding of the gospel, the more that we are going to understand and also be able to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions in this present age. That's what that means. The more you grow in the gospel, the more you grow in Christ, the better you will be at renouncing ungodliness, putting to death sin. Now, what does that mean? What what kind of sins should we be putting to death? Well, we don't have to guess. The Apostle Paul gave us a list in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. I'll just read a couple of them. The Apostle Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, verse 9 goes on to say. So what we're seeing is this. The gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ trains us to identify sin in our life and to renounce that sin. Some examples may be malice, envy, gossip, slander, jealousy, lying to each other, idolatry, greed, sexual morality, impurity, covetousness. When we find these things, we need to put those things to death. That is what the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ trains us to do. 
Now, the difference between an unchristian or a non-Christian and a Christian is really important. In our culture today, typically people think that Christians are people who think that they have their life together and they're better than other people. And I have to make sure, I don't know where you all are standing uh, at this time, but I just want to encourage you, if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't identify as a Christian, I want to help you understand what we believe about ourselves, or at least should. There's some silly Christians who need to probably think twice before they speak, but here's what we as Christians understand. Every one of us as a human being will think, feel, do, and say things we know we ought not to do. And Christians are the people who recognize that and who also have come to the realization that no matter what we do, we can't stop ourselves from sinning. We don't have the power, we don't have the capacity, we don't have the know-how. We can't do it in and of ourselves. And so therefore, we have looked no longer within, we now look outside of ourselves to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, and the sending of the Holy Spirit, now grants us the power and the know-how and the ability to put to death sin. And apart from his giving of the Holy Spirit, we would not be able to do it on our own. Now, the difference between a Christian who understands that and a non-Christian is this. A non-Christian still believes that they have the fortitude, they have the power, they have the ability to actually overcome what is wrong with them. Even though they have a wake of failure. And they have all this testimony that they can't do it. They don't stop to finally surrender to turn from their sin and to trust Jesus. That's the difference. It's not that we're better. It's that we've finally admitted how horrible we really are. That's what it means to be a Christian. I am the chief of sinners. Who's with me? You see how that works? Now, when you think about that, it's really, really important Because what it means is we are utterly desperate and dependent on God in order for him to grant us the Holy Spirit to empower us to wage the good warfare, which is the warfare against sin. It's putting to death sin. Now, how do we learn how to put to death sin? Well, the grace of God. The gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ trains us to renounce sin. Which means the more that we behold the gospel, and the more that we commit ourselves to understanding the gospel, the more we will be trained by the Holy Spirit to put to death the sin that we find in our own lives. So long as we continue to behold the gospel, continue to behold Christ in all of his beauty and glory okay but there is remember the positive as well and we see this in Colossians chapter 3 verses 12 to 17 Paul writes put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved compassionate hearts Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a gigantic list of do's. Be thankful, forgive, love, sing. You know, before I became a Christian, I was sitting in a Starbucks on Oliver Road in Fairfield, California with a bunch of Christian guys that were in my high school. And they gave me a Bible. We're sitting around reading Colossians chapter 1. I had no idea what they were talking about. I'm just sitting there like, all right, because I got invited. And as they were talking about Colossians 1, I'm listening to these guys pull their ignorance together, and who knows what was being concluded or whatever. But one of the guys, he was like, Phil, when are you going to become a Christian? And I was like, never. Number one, I don't want to change the way I live. Number two, there's some other things I said. I realize now I probably shouldn't say that. This will be on the Internet. Um, and so one of the guys replied back to me with all the wisdom that he had, and he was well-meaning. He said, Phil, you need to realize that Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. Okay. And I was just sitting there, and so I read ahead, and I got to Colossians chapter 3. And so I piped in. I don't even know what they're talking about. I interrupted everyone. Hey, whoa, 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 whoa. What? You said Christianity is not about a list of do's and don'ts. Yeah. There's two lists of don'ts and do's literally in the Bible. What do you do with that? And it was fun because the four or five guys I was sitting there, they all went, oh. Yeah, no, 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 that's just legalism. <laughs> and I didn't know any better, so I was like, oh, okay, legalism, that's bad. All right, so then we moved on. But then I started to ask myself the question, did, after I became a Christian, really, did God really give us lists of do's and don'ts only for us to ignore them? Because after all, we, we oh, you don't want to be a legalist. That's a dirty word. It's the dirtiest word. And I, I think it's laughable in the church. We're all uptight and scared to death to be found to be a legalist. You know he's a legalist. Oh, he is? Oh, gosh. Like he has leprosy or something. But I don't find many people in the church who are all up in arms and bent out of shape about antinomianism. You know what that word means? It means you're anti, and nomianism means law. You're anti-law. You're anti-commandments. I don't see many people like up in arms, oh, do you know he's an antinomian? He doesn't actually care about obedience. People don't care about that. They're just, don't be a legalist. And then if you just say, no list, do whatever you want, we're good with that. And I would say, whoa, 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 we need to backtrack. God in his wisdom and the Holy Spirit has given us in the Bible lists of things we ought not to do and things we ought to do. I think we should pay attention to those things. I got a hunch Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. We have a saying in our culture, monkey see, monkey do. Why? Because we pattern our behaviors and our speech and our feelings after the things we behold. 
So if you behold the gospel, which is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ, and with that understanding that I become what I behold, and if I'm beholding Jesus in his beauty and glory, what might I become? I become like Jesus. Think about this. If you are looking in the gospel and you are beholding the selflessness of Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, your heart will yearn to be more like Jesus, and the result will be, will be you will become more selfless. If you are beholding Jesus and you're recognizing the love of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will work in you so that you will want to be like Jesus and you will begin to love others in ways that you didn't think possible. And when you behold the grace and mercy and patience of Jesus, the Holy Spirit will work in you in such a way that beholding Christ, you'll be transformed to him and you will become the patient, gracious, and merciful person that you know you need to be. But that is only if we will behold Christ. And if we will behold the gospel and if we will put these things in front of our minds. But you have to remember, brothers and sisters, we preach through Galatians. You can't obey the do's and don'ts in your own power. Only the Holy Spirit indwelling in you can empower you to do the very things that God has commanded you to do. That's what Romans 8 is all about. God grants us the Holy Spirit so that we are empowered and enlivened in order to obey God by doing the things he says to do and renouncing the things he says to renounce. But you have to remember, how do you receive the Holy Spirit? It's only by repenting of your sins, which means stop trusting your own power and expertise and know-how. You will never be able to obey God perfectly as he demands. But God in his grace and mercy has sent Jesus to do it for you. So that in Jesus, all the righteous requirements of God have been fully met. So that if you trust in Jesus, his righteousness becomes your own. And when you trust in Jesus by turning from your sin and trusting that he does all the work, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you. And now you are empowered to obey God. You see, we always get it backwards. We think, I will obey God, and then he will save me and accept me. That's legalism. The gospel is, you can't do squat. Jesus has done everything necessary. Believe him. Trust him. Turn to him. And when you receive the Holy Spirit by believing in him, now you will obey in response. Because you'll actually have the power to obey. That is gospel, not legalism. So I'm not advocating legalism. I'm advocating gospel-driven obedience. Now, what exactly is God's purpose? What is exactly is God's plan for me in 2020? I can tell you without a doubt, I know for a fact, God wants you to do at least two things. You need to start killing sin this year. And you need to start living in obedience. But that can only happen if you first repent and believe in the gospel and receive the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
I want to show you verse 13 and 14, how these things fit together. The characteristic which combines these two is this, that we are waiting for our blessed hope. Remember what the word blessed means, makarios. It also means you were here a couple weeks ago. Everyone here is new. Wow. (laughs) Makarios, the word blessed can also mean happy. And so what we see is we are waiting for our happy hope. We as Christians have a happy hope. What is our happy hope? It is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are filled with happiness in our hoping and waiting because we are hoping and waiting for Jesus to come. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it does not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. When Jesus appears, we will be like him. Why will we become like Jesus when he appears? It's because we shall see him as he is. When Jesus appears, we will behold him, and in beholding him, we will become like him. Now, that is our happy hope. Our happy hope is to be like Jesus. To become like Jesus is to behold Jesus. But Jesus ain't here yet. So how do we behold Jesus while we wait We behold Jesus through his word, and we behold Jesus in the gospel. So if we will behold Jesus through his word in the gospel, we will become like Jesus. The inner man, as Paul says, is being renewed day by day. Even though the outer man, our bodies are wasting away. But then look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes, everyone who has this kind of happy hope of being like Jesus, will purify himself. As he is pure. If you have a happy hope in Jesus, the result will be, I want to be like him. And since he is pure, I want to be like him, therefore I want to be pure. Now you can talk about hope until the cows come home. I got hope, 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 hope. You can emblaze it on church buildings, hope. But if the hope you have doesn't lead to your pursuit of purity, You don't have hope. Christian hope is an inspirational thing that drives you to holiness. Those who hope most are holy. So what is the trainer's purpose? What is God's ultimate goal and aim? The trainer is the gospel of God's grace in Christ Jesus. The training is that we will kill sin, live holy lives by the Holy Spirit, motivated by the hope of Jesus' return and us becoming like him. Okay, so what is God's purpose? What does God actually have for us ultimately? Look at this in verse 14. Jesus, our happy hope. Notice our happy hope is not a thing, it's a person. It's Jesus. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. There's that negative. We kill sin 
because Jesus has delivered us from it. We kill sin because Jesus gave himself up in order to redeem us from it. Jesus doesn't die for us in order that we may continue in sin. He died for us so that we may no longer continue in sin. Jesus didn't die so you can go and send your brains out guilt-free. That's the negative. What's the positive? He gave himself up for us to redeem us from all others. And the second thing is to purify. Here's the, the positive. To purify for himself. To purify. There's our word again. For himself, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus redeemed us from all lawlessness. He saved us from the wrath of God. And by his blood, according to Acts 20, 28, by his blood, he obtained a people called the church. And the people whom God attained by the blood of Jesus, he desires to purify them. So what is God's plan and purpose for you in 2020? First, if you're not yet a Christian, God's desire is for you to be a Christian so that he can welcome you into his family. And if you are a Christian, then what he wants to do is, since you are his possession, bought by the blood of Christ, he wants to purify you by the Holy Spirit. So that, the end of the verse, so that this prized possession, this purified people would be zealous. And the word zealous there means passionate. For good works. When we read, let's go to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Let me just show you this. Put it all together. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not legalism. But he saved us according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, here's our purpose, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things, Paul writes to Titus. Why? So that those who have believed in God, those who have trusted in the gospel, trusted in Christ, that they may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Brothers and sisters, I know exactly what God wants for you this year. He wants you to continue to fix your eyes on Jesus Christ and to be consumed with the gospel. In beholding the gospel, you will become more and more like Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit renews and regenerates you and empowers you in such a way that through the gift-giving and the empowerment, the vivification, the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit, you will be equipped and empowered to kill sin and live righteously, and the whole result will you be, you'll be a passionate, devoted person to do good works in the world. That's what God has for you. And all of that is possible simply because of God's grace. It's the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ that makes this possible. God wants his church to be a purified people who are passionate and who are carefully devoted to good works. 
But remember, you don't do this alone. I know so many people that go, Phil, man, if, if I just, like, you know, do this, you know, I, I feel like that's, you know, what if I don't want to? I don't want to be inauthentic. And that's in our culture right now. Everyone wants to be authentic. You got to be your, your true self. So what if I, as a Christian, don't want to obey God? Do it anyway. That's called discipline. Not legalism. Discipline. Because I have the affections of God already, and I don't want to do the things I'm supposed to do, I'm going to bypass my feelings and do what I'm supposed to do anyway. But isn't that being inauthentic? No. Inauthenticity is pretending that you don't have what's in you, and what's in you is not really there. So if I'm saying, God, I don't want to serve you today, that's how I feel. How is that inauthentic? But God, even though I don't feel like serving you today, I'm going to do it anyways because that's what you asked me to do and I want to live my life in honor of you. How is that inauthentic? It's not. That's the most authentic. Because you don't feel like it is no justification for disobedience. Sometimes we have hard hearts and that's why we don't feel like it. But remember Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Get going. Verse 13, why? Because it's God who works in you. It's God who's working in you. As you work, God works. We're working. And the two things God is working, two things. Number one, to will. What does that mean? To want. And then secondly, to work. So when we are authentically honest with God, God, I don't want to serve you today. I don't want to love these people. They annoy me. I don't want to give. I don't want to be generous. I don't want to, I don't want to do this stuff. But the grace of God is training me to be self-controlled. So I will discipline myself and I will act in obedience, knowing Philippians 2.13, which says, in my working, you're going to work out my feeling and eventually what I don't want to do, I will want to do because you work in my work. And brothers and sisters, when you start loving that person that you thought you never could love, you'll start finding a twinge in your heart. I actually love them. And that's God at work. That's God working. So get to work. When we come together as a church for communion, what we're doing is we're reminding ourselves that we have been bought with a price. Jesus Christ, by his blood, has purchased a people who he seeks to purify, who would be zealous, passionate, careful, devoted to good works, and through the Holy Spirit are disciplining themselves to kill sin and live righteously, not in order to earn anything, but because we already have the affections of God given to us. When we come to communion, what we're doing is taking the elements in our hands. And we're putting the bread in the cup. And we are reminding ourselves tangibly of the gospel. The body of Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, lived perfectly, was crucified for me, resurrected, and is coming again for me. And I've been bought by his blood. And for three minutes today, may we be undistracted. And may we just sit in God's presence, and just let this sink in, and let's reflect on this, shall we? 
So, Father, thank you so much for sending Jesus. Thank you that in Jesus we know for a fact what it is you want for us. Because in Jesus we have been redeemed from our lawlessness. We are being purified as your treasured possession that we may be zealous for good works. And God, we also know that you are training us as we behold the gospel to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. So I pray, Lord, as we take communion together as the family of God, you inviting us to your table, that you would grant us all that we need by your grace through the Spirit to bring you glory that we may be filled with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.